You are listening to episode 18 of Captain's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 47, Diurnia System, 2372, June 1st. The run back into Diurnia from Jet was strictly routine. It didn't seem possible we'd been gone almost six months. Mr. Paul threaded the needle for us quite nicely, and in something under seven weeks we were being nudged toward Diurnia orbital and home port. We experimented a bit with the jump, shooting for a point somewhat higher in relation to the plane of the ecliptic, and the winds there were perhaps somewhat more stable. Diurnia has less in the way of orbital real estate than Jet does, and several of the larger bodies were on the far side of Diurnia's primary, which cut down on the local disturbances. The only thing out of the ordinary, and it rapidly became normal, was the relationship between Ms. Thomas and Mr. Wyatt. Nobody said anything, just accepted it as normal. Perhaps there'd been more there than I'd been aware of before, based on a mumbled about time that I overheard from one of the ratings. I had no complaints personally. They both reported to me and had no conflicts in the chain of command. If anything, I found that Ms. Thomas was much more diligent than before in terms of her relationships with the ratings, and Mr. Wyatt was especially careful of her dietary requirements. We also instituted movie night on the mess deck, and Mr. Ricks proved to be an amusing and erudite critic of film. I don't know if he had a secret encyclopedia of movie trivia on his tablet, or if he really did know a lot about movies. Perhaps some of each, because the films jumped around from night to night, never any two films in a row in the same decade or genre. We got around the who's on watch problem by showing the same film for three nights, in fact, which gave everybody a chance to watch it twice rather than shorting somebody who didn't get to see it at all. It worked out surprisingly well. One other thing marked the return home. I started practicing my Tai Chi for the first time since taking over the ship. It was a discipline that I'd picked up at the academy and carried with me for all the stanyards I'd been aboard the tinker. The gym there had a small floor for those members of the crew who practiced one of the martial arts, and I'd taken full advantage of it. The Agamemnon, by comparison, had no room in the workout room to do anything like Tai Chi, which doesn't require a huge amount of space, but does require some. It occurred to me as I was getting off the treadmill one day that the main passageway provided more than sufficient room. We tended to ignore it as a ship's space, since it really was a transitional area, but it was probably the single largest uninterrupted deck area aboard. I found that it offered more than enough space for me to do a full Jung Long form, without having to worry about bumping into a bulkhead or cramping a movement. I was very rusty after so long without practice, but within a few days it evened out. By the time we got to Diurnia, it felt smooth and fluid. The moving meditation worked its magic, and I found myself relaxing into it and carrying that sense of being in the moment with me after the session was over. By the time we nuzzled into the lock at Diurnia, we already had our cans lined up for the next trip. I'd snagged a low-level priority shipment of machine parts going to Dray, which set up our course. Very shortly thereafter, Mr. Hill managed to grab a contract on a middle-priority can of pharmaceuticals, Mr. Wyatt got a container of unprocessed silicone wafers that also had a middle-level priority. I was waiting on the final tally from the shipments from Jet, but it looked like the two of them were still neck and neck. Frankly, I was about ready to spend a night or two ashore. The tinker was not a long hauler and had a pretty regular routine. Sometimes it was Jet and other times Welliver, but wherever we went, we always jumped back home. I'd never been gone more than two and a half months in all the time we'd been married, and I was ready for a warm homecoming 
We docked just before noon, and first section had the watch. It didn't take long for us to clear customs and get settled in. I had Ms. Thomas declare liberty just past 1300, and I wasn't the first one off the ship, but nobody seemed to begrudge me not being the last one either. I had packed a kit already and only needed to grab and go. By 1305, I was walking down the passage toward the apartment. I had to confess a bit of nervousness. If Jen were still in the same schedule, she'd be home still. She normally reported to work around 1600 and then worked until 0100 or so. There were more people around in the afternoon, and I met several of them as I headed home. My across-the-hall neighbor was headed to the ice machine in his stocking feet and seemed almost embarrassed to be caught out without his shoes. I'm not sure why I'd often made the same trip myself. I nodded and smiled as we passed. When I slipped into the apartment, it was still dark, although I heard rustling in the bedroom as I crossed the kitchen. Before I got to the door, I spoke. Honey, I'm home. I stepped around the corner, and she sat bolt upright in bed. She took my breath away. Ishmael? You were expecting the plumber? I smiled. No, she caught herself. I just didn't expect you until tonight. We docked before noon. Customs cleared us right away, and I came right home. I don't need to be back until 0600. I crossed to the bed, dropping my kit at the foot and crossing over to my side to start stripping down. Boots, ship suit, boxers, and tea all went flying as she launched herself at me, dragging me down so strongly that we both rolled over to her side in a giggling mass of limbs and skin. She was quite vocal, and I was glad we were there in the afternoon and not when the neighbors might be around. It didn't take too long for me to not be thinking at all. Around 1500, she extricated herself and climbed into the shower. I must have been exhausted because I fell right back asleep again and slept through until almost 2200. It's one of the side effects of the watch-standing merry-go-round. When you finally get a chance to sleep, usually it hits all at once. The release of being off the ship and home, to say nothing of the vigorous homecoming, served to tell my mind and body that it was time to rest. I slept like a log. My bladder finally drove me to crawl out, and once up, I slipped on my boxers and padded out to the kitchen. I wasn't in the mood for big food or a major production, so I just made a sandwich and washed it down with some fruit juice before thinking that bed was a good place to wait. I could feel more sleep in my immediate future, and I expected I wouldn't get much sleep between her homecoming and my having to leave to take over the watch at 0600. I was right. I didn't get much, and my tablet had to bit me to get me moving at 0500. I was muscle sore and a bit raw in places, but I felt great as I got into the shower and sluiced off the accumulated slime. The scent of her soap and shampoo was unmistakable and made me feel warm and at home all over again. Time was ticking and I couldn't linger though, so I toweled off quickly and padded naked out to the dimly lit bedroom. My kit was where I'd tossed it and I fished out fresh boxers, tea, socks, and a rolled up ship suit. It was a matter of just a few ticks to get the fresh clothes on, gather up the dirty and stuff them into my bag. I crossed to my side of the bed and sat down on it leaning over for a good-morning, goodbye kiss, and was rewarded with a warm snuggle that threatened to make me late. We'll see you tonight, hon. She mumbled something but was asleep again before she finished the thought. I grinned and reached down for my boot. The chrono on the side table said, oh, 525. I was going to be in plenty of time. It occurred to me suddenly that my boot was not going on. I had it by the top and was stuffing my foot into it, but it wasn't going. I pulled it off to see if I'd dropped something into it, and it wasn't until that moment that I realized it wasn't my boot. For a few heartbeats, I thought it might be Jen's, but I leaned over and pulled out the mate from under the edge of the bed. Not Jen's. They were a very serviceable, 
station-style boot. Almost every stationer had a pair like them. These were scuffed about the toe a bit and a tad run down at the heel, about three sizes too big for Jen and obviously one size too small for me. There are moments in one's life where things become at once crystal clear and very dark. As I sat there on the bed, I remembered the day Nara Security knocked on the door to tell me that my mother had died. I realized I was holding my breath. I tried to breathe out and in, and out and in. It seemed to work, sort of. I leaned down and put the boots back on the floor. A little to one side, I found my own boots and realized I'd stopped breathing again as I slipped them on, so I focused on breathing in, breathing out. I remembered the way my brain would vaporlock when we had our little getting-underway fights back before I was a captain. That's what I was doing. It had shut off. I had to remember to breathe. I wanted to scream. I wanted to rail against the unfairness. But I had to admit to myself that the unfairness was being away too long, being gone when I should have been here. I had to force myself to breathe in, breathe out. The chrono clicked to 0530 and I had to move. My ship needed me. I needed my ship. I stood and grabbed the strap on my kit. The pair of boots was still there on the deck. I could see the darker shape of them against the floor covering. Without thinking, I stooped and grabbed one, stuffing it into my kit as I left the apartment for what I knew would be the last time. The path at the docks was clear at 0530. Most of the people who needed to be there were already there, and those who didn't were still closeted. I don't think I met a single soul on the way. I'm not really sure, but I did breathe in and breathe out. The lift doors opened onto the docks, and the frigid air tingled into my nose and down into my lungs. I breathed it out, hot and moist. One step at a time, and the lock opened on my key. Mr. Ricks was on duty, and I tried to smile a little, but it was a brittle thing that wasn't working. I could see it in his eyes. I shrugged and nodded and escaped down the passage. In the cabin, the wide port showed the scarred white metal of the orbital, and that seemed appropriate. I didn't need to focus on breathing anymore. It seemed to be coming more naturally. The lock was closed. My tie to shore was cut. I could focus on the ship, on the next watch. The next watch, yes. I tossed the kid onto my bunk and used the sink in the head to splash some water on my face. I needed to get a bit more control before I faced any more of the crew. I was the captain. I could do it. At 0545, I found Mr. Paul on the mess deck and managed to hide behind a cup of coffee. He wasn't very much awake, and I managed to fool him long enough to relieve the watch and send him off to wash up a bit before breakfast. Mr. Wyatt, however, gave me a very concerned sideways glance. Good morning, Skipper. Good morning, Avery. What's for breakfast? I'm starved. It sounded okay to me. Good solid voice, right level of volume and intonation. I just pretended I was me being captain. I knew what I was supposed to sound like. I just did that. He didn't seem fooled, but he played along with me. In my heart, I thanked him profusely. Omelets this morning, Captain. Can I make you one? I glanced at the chrono on the bulkhead. Mess isn't for another few ticks, Mr. Wyatt, but if you'd like to test the pans, I'd be happy to help out. I tried the smile again. I don't think it actually worked that time either, but at least Mr. Wyatt didn't seem frightened by it, as Mr. Ricks had earlier. Anything in particular you'd like to have in it, Skipper? I crossed to the table and took my seat. 
Surprise me, Avery. You've never made a bad omelet for me, and I'm sure you won't start now. The smile was coming more easily. The familiar surroundings were helping. There was enough oxygen in the air. Chief Gearhart saw to that with the utmost diligence. It seemed like I had just seated myself when he slipped the plate in front of me, and I tucked in. Oh, this is delicious, Avery. What all did you put in here? Oh, a little of this, a little of that, some sweepings from the meat cooler and a bit of grit from the lock. Mr. Ricks found a bit of mildew that was a particularly poignant color as well. It really is wonderful, Mr. Wyatt. You've outdone yourself again. Thank you, Captain. I knew you'd like it. The rest of the crew gathered, and I thought I did fairly well at pretending to be me. Miss Thomas and Mr. Wyatt had a quiet conversation at the stovetop, and I thought they looked remarkably domestic. They really did make a good couple. None of the ratings lingered over breakfast. Mr. Hill went back to the lock, and the other two headed up to the flea market. They picked up some nice items during the stay at Jet. Likewise, Mr. Paul seemed barely awake and ate mechanically, almost falling asleep in his plate. The chief, on the other hand, sat across from me and looked at me with those sapphire daggers. Once, she arched an eyebrow, but she made small talk without asking questions. Miss Thomas and Mr. Wyatt sat beside each other and talked shop and ship, odds and ends. They glanced in my direction occasionally, but offered no pointed commentary. The food helped, and before I really knew it, I'd polished off the omelet, a couple of slices of toast, and even a pastry. I sat back in my chair and looked across the table at them. Bless them. Every one. They didn't say a word. I took a deep breath and let it out slowly. No, I'm not all right. The chief choked out a laugh. <laughs> really? You seem perfectly fine to me. Doesn't he seem fine to you, Avery? Oh, never better, chief. Just marvelous. They were twitting me, but they had soft eyes and softer smiles. Thank you. I'll be in the cabin if anybody needs me. I've got reports to finish. Miss Thomas nodded. Of course, Skipper. I got up and slotted my dirties out of habit before pulling a fresh mug of coffee from the urn. I took several sips from it as I headed for the ladder. Mr. Wyatt stopped me. Captain, is that coffee okay? Y yes, Avery, why? Captain, that's the cold pot. I haven't had a chance to rinse it out yet. You might want to warm that up a bit. I stopped and looked into the cup. Yes, it was stone cold. The mug was like ice in my hand. I thought it seemed a bit cooler than normal, Mr. Wyatt. Thanks. They didn't say anything as I emptied the cold coffee into the sink and refilled the mug with hot. The china warmed in my hand and seemed to sink into me in some fundamental way. I took a sip of the dark aromatic brew, drawing the scent of it into my lungs as the warm liquid fell down my throat. Yes, much better. Thank you. I managed to make it to the cabin without further mishap and settled at my desk. The reports needed to be reviewed and the overnight logs approved. I forced myself to read carefully. I focused on the words and the meanings. A mistake here and somebody might die. I got through several of them and as I worked I felt the spinning in my head begin to ease. At noon I went down to the mess deck and had a light lunch before returning, with hot coffee the first time, to the cabin to complete the reports. The routine soothed me, and by 1500 I'd finished them off. I had three more stands of watch, and then I'd be off. The thought hit me hard. Off duty. But then what? I went into the sleeping cabin and began to unpack my kit. 
dropping the dirty clothing into the cleaner and stowing the toiletries back in the head. I'd almost forgotten the boot, or blocked it from my mind, more like, and when I pulled it out of the bag I had a moment of befuddlement before it all came back and I felt foolish. I took the boot back to my desk and sat it down there in the middle. I sat and looked at it for a long time. At 17.30 I got up, stripped off my clothes, and took a shower. When I got out, I put on an undress uniform and fastened the gold stars to my collar. I grabbed the empty kit bag and stuffed the boot into it before slinging the strap over my shoulder and heading for the mess deck. At 17.45, we relieved the watch. With the formality served, I smiled. Really smiled, for maybe the first time all day. They looked relieved, but not yet relaxed. Will you be staying aboard for dinner, Captain? No, Mr. Wyatt, I have some business I need to deal with ashore, and I'll grab a bite there. I should be back within two or three stands. I had left them getting ready to open the dinner mess and headed for the lock. I met Mr. Schubert coming in with a bundle of goods from the flea market and stood aside while he wrestled it into the locker. Good day at the flea, Mr. Schubert. Very good, Skipper. We're getting the hang of it now, I think. Carry on, then. I smiled and nodded as I left the ship, keyed the lock closed behind me. The O-1 deck on the orbital was where all the officers and support staff for the docks are located. It's just one level down from the docks, and it's open around the clock. Ships and their crews were often at the mercy of schedules that knew no day, no night, just now. By 1830, I was wrapping up my business with Ms. Audrey Paquette, solicitor. Are you sure about this, Captain? I sat there for a full tick. Was I sure? No, but it's what has to happen. But you haven't talked this over with your wife. It's normally done with the two parties in the same room at the same time. It cuts down on, how do I put this, ambiguity. She'll have to sign this agreement. And if she's never seen it, how can you be sure she'll agree to dissolving your marriage on the grounds of irreconcilable differences? I fished in the kit and pulled out the boot. I reached over and, to Ms. Paquette's horror, placed it on the center of her blotted-topped desk. Deliver the papers in that. Chapter 48, Diurnia System, 2372, June 2nd. Leaving the office, I felt empty. I had almost 24 stands before I went back on duty, and normally when in home port, I'd spend the time at the apartment. I must have stood there in the passageway for a full tick, trying to think of what to do, where to go. My stomach growled to let me know that it had been a long time since lunch, and my feet took their cue without my having to think about it. The lift dropped me down one deck and opened up to the familiar smell of over-easy. I wondered how much business they must get just from that one factor. Spacers coming in from the cold of the deep dark, walking off their ships filled with canned air, crossing the frigidly cold and mechanically freighted dock, getting into the lift and dropping down to the O2 deck for a little R&R, &R, and when the lift opened, they're hit quite literally between the eyes with the warm aromas of coffee, bacon, and toast. I followed my nose and found myself sitting at my favorite stool at the long counter. The guy behind the counter was a new one I hadn't seen before, or maybe having been absent so long I just didn't remember. His badge said Phil, and he was waiting for my order with that little chin-up look they all seemed to have. 
a posture that said, what can I get you, without actually speaking. Coffee, high test, Frank special, three rashers, three over easy, double toast. He smiled a little smile, nodded once as he reached for the metal-clad pot under the counter. Welcome back. Thanks. He finished scribbling the order and tore it off the anachronistic pad of paper, slotting it into the wheel at the pass-through. Order up, Sammy. He moved on down the counter, filling cups, clearing dishes, keeping the customers happy and moving. More than a few eyes watched him go, male and female. I took a moment to look around the place. It wasn't as full as normal, not too surprisingly. The dinner hour was one hour that over easy didn't really have a lot of draw. A few tables were full and about half of the stools at the counter. One other waiter was working the floor and Phil was alone behind the counter. I knew it would fill up later as late-night revelers looked for sustenance or maybe one last chance at a decision on who to take home. It wasn't too long before Phil got back down to my end again and slid a plate of hot food in front of me. I dug in with a will, and if the familiar homespun fare didn't fill the hole inside me, uh, at least it helped warm the chill a bit. As I worked down to the plate, I think my mind finally started catching up with me a bit, and I started actually thinking again instead of just reacting. I really wanted to feel hurt and angry and betrayed, something hot and passionate. What I felt was numb and cold. For seven Staniers, I'd asked her to wait for me while I went herring across the quadrant, and in return I paid her rent and visited her a few days every few months. If I were going to be brutally honest with myself, and sitting there in over-easy with the empty plate staring up at me from the counter, I couldn't help but rub the salt in my own wounds. Aside from the coming home part, it hadn't really been all that great for me either, and I couldn't really find it in me to blame her for finding what she needed somewhere else. It's cold in the deep dark, and if life on the orbital wasn't exactly the deep dark, in a certain sense we all carry a bit of the deep dark inside. I sighed and ran the last corner of toast around the plate before popping it into my mouth and washing it down with coffee. Phil brought the tab and I thumbed it adding a generous tip before I headed back out into the passage. I wasn't quite ready to go back to the ship, so I took a spin around the O2 deck, strolling past the shops, restaurants, pubs, and clubs. Down here was the antithesis of the cold of the docks. All the extra bodies gave the air a moist texture that the environmental systems never caught up with. There was a constant hubbub of coming and going, of greetings and farewells. I looked at the faces going by me and noted the various looks some smiling, some frowning, some thoughtful as if trying to decide something, and others jovially unfocused from having perhaps one or four too many drinks. A cross-section of the universe strolled the deck beside and around me, thickening and becoming more active as the chrono clicked around toward the later evening hours and station time. I'd forgotten, or perhaps blocked, that the Miller Moth was on the O2 deck, and my circumnavigation of the passageway took me past the open doorway. It was coming up on prime time for the pub, and a quiet cascade of voices came from inside. I couldn't help but look in as I walked past and caught sight of Jen behind the bar, smiling and laughing at a customer as she drew him a beer, slid it expertly onto the bar in front of him. She didn't look up, and I kept walking steadily. And there was something in that glimpse that gave me a certain peace. I couldn't explain it, but it was as if 
peeking into her life from the passage outside, underscored what our relationship had been. I really didn't know what her life was like, day in, day out. Ten years ago, I'd had some romantic notions about how we'd make it work and what life would be like together, but we'd never really been together. We only had these little glimpses into each other's lives before I left again, leaving her to live her life alone. That feeling of being alone crashed over me and made me stumble once as I realized that she wasn't the only one who'd been lonely. Over the Staniers, my shipmates had become, in a very real sense, my family. But like a family, some part of me was always reserved from them. They were my brothers and sisters, or perhaps cousins, aunts, and uncles, but they were never my wife, never my lover. They offered the companionship against the dark, but never really took away the cold. And I realized that I'd been cold for a very, very long time. Ahead of me, over easy, and the lift came into view again around the curve of the passage, and I closed the loop of my circuit of the orbital. I felt suddenly very tired. Some part of my brain was solving the equation of how much I wanted anything that might be left in the apartment as a function of desire to just walk away balanced against salvage rights for an abandoned life. As the lift doors closed behind me, my hand wavered over the button pad. I realized that I didn't really remember what I might have left in the apartment, and I'd be unlikely to miss any of it. Anything that meant something to me was already aboard ship. The realization saddened me, but also provided the solution to my emotional calculus. I punched the button for the docks and headed for the ship. Mr. Schubert logged me back aboard with a sympathetic smile. Good evening, Skipper. Hello, Mr. Schubert. How did the co-op go today? Very well, Captain. We unloaded the last of the leftovers from before, and Zack found some really nice tapestries late in the afternoon. We were able to pick up several at a bargain price. I smiled. There are always better deals in the afternoon, Mr. Schubert. He grinned in return. So we're learning, Captain. I headed into the ship and stopped at the door to the mess deck. Miss Thomas and Mr. Wyatt were playing chess at the table, and Miss Thomas looked up as I stopped. Good evening, Skipper. How are you doing this evening? Mr. Wyatt was sitting at my spot so they could play across the table and be comfortable. When he saw me, he started to get up, but I waved him back down. I'm feeling a little better this evening, thank you, Miss Thomas, but I think I'm just going to go up to the cabin and get a good night's sleep. They both smiled sympathetically, but offered no words, for which I was grateful. I nodded to them and bid them good night before heading up the ladder and stepping into the cabin. The reflected light from the side of the orbital just outside the armor glass gave the room a solid white light and cast the main objects in the room in bold relief. The white glare on the pastel yellow walls gave a sickly glow to the room that I'd never really noticed before. I flicked on the overheads, but the brilliant glare was almost painful, and I quickly shut them off again. My body said it was nighttime, and I needed less light, not more. I crossed to the sleeping cabin and pulled the slider shut, throwing the room into near-total darkness with only the glow from a bridge repeater on the bulkhead to offer just enough light to see by. I stripped out of my uniform and hung it up. I toyed with the idea of putting on a ship suit, but the weight of fatigue overwhelmed my desire to do anything but wash my face and go to bed. As I crossed to my bunk, I did something I couldn't ever remember doing on board a ship. I stripped out of my ship tea and boxers, tossing them into the cleaner on the way by, and slipped my naked body between the cool, crisp sheets. It felt decadent and luxurious, and as the smooth fabric warmed around me, 
I slid down the soft curve into sleep. I awoke as gently as I'd gone to sleep, surfacing from dream state to reality in a comfortable warm glow and rolling over to see the chronometer on the bulkhead click over from 0522 to 0523. I weighed the hedonistic urge to savor the moment of sleepy comfort against a day's worth of possibilities, starting with one of Mr. Wyatt's breakfasts. Breakfast one, so I crawled out of bed and padded naked into the head to do the needful. The shower finished waking me, and fresh clothing felt good on my skin. As I slipped into my boots, I looked around the sleeping cabin and realized just how sterile the environment was. The sunny yellow color really only made me look jaundiced in the light of the overhead, and there was nothing that gave the place any kind of lived-in look. I snorted when I realized I'd seen hotel rooms with more personality. Crossing through the main cabin on my way down to breakfast, I realized that it wasn't any better. The glare from the orbital skin did absolutely nothing for the yellow on the bulkhead, and even the richer color of the bare, highlighted walls looked muddy and uneven in the light. I eyed that spot above my desk where I still hadn't framed and mounted my master's license. Mr. Wyatt's breakfast was as delightful as I'd hoped it would be. A lovely egg-baked dish with savory sausage and potatoes with a compote of fruit and a yogurty dressing on the side. Mess was brief and conversation subdued but companionable enough. If they gave me the occasional weighing glance, I didn't blame them. Miss Thomas and Mr. Schubert excused themselves after the meal, and I helped the chief and Mr. Wyatt clean up while Mr. Paul got caught up on the O.D. logs. As we finished up, the chief gave me one of her sapphire glances. Any plans for the day, Skipper? Yes, chief. Actually, I have several errands I want to accomplish today. I hadn't really given it a lot of conscious thought, but my brain had obviously been working while I'd been eating. I smiled at her. I think it's time I decorated the cabin. It must have come at her from off the plane of her mental ecliptic because her face went blank for a moment as she processed what I'd said. Decorate the cabin? You thinking of hanging drapes? Her tone was light and amused. I considered that idea. Drapes. Hmm. I hadn't really thought of that, but now that you mention it, I ought to do something there. Her smile became more bemused than amused, and she just arched one eyebrow. I'll be interested to see what you do with the place, Skipper. She glanced sideways toward Mr. Wyatt, who was looking on with a certain amused smile of his own. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that I liked the idea. If you'll excuse me, I need to see a man about a horse. I gave them a little smile and headed off to the cabin to retrieve my license before heading down to the chandlery. It was time to see about a frame. It was only a matter of a couple of ticks, and I was checking out at the brow when another thought crossed my mind. Mr. Rex, Mr. Schubert said you'd managed to pick up some tapestries yesterday at the flea. That's right, Skipper. I think some of them might be rugs, actually, but the lady was selling them at a bargain rate at the end of the day, so she didn't have to pack them up and drag them off. He grinned. We got a couple dozen. May I see them, Mr. Rex? Of course, Skipper. He went to the locker and swung open the doors. He pulled a couple of totes from the shelves and pulled out some lovely hangings. They were in a variety of colors, heavily leaning toward rich earth tones of brown, gold, green, and red. Some were highly textured, and others showed bold tribal patterns. Mr. Ricks, these are exquisite. Thank you, Captain. I thought they'd make a nice profit at Dre. I grinned at him. I don't think you're going to actually get all of them to Dre before they're sold, Mr. Ricks. I pulled four of them from the stack, a large one with a subtle pattern in shades of red, one of the middle-sized ones with green and gold, 
and a pair of small, highly patterned pieces in shades of black and brown. How much for those, Mr. Ricks? He looks startled. You're buying them, Skipper? Depends on the price, Mr. Ricks. I grinned at him. Well, you can have them at cost, Skipper. If it weren't for you, we wouldn't have any of them. How much is that, Mr. Ricks? He gave me a price. That was a good deal, Mr. Ricks. Nicely done. I pulled out my tablet and credited the co-op's account with the price he'd given me, plus 10%. If you'd log these to my mass allotment and set them aside, Mr. Ricks, I've got some errands to run and I'll pick them up when I get back. Of course, Skipper. He nodded and started restowing things while I headed out of the lock and down to the chandlery. Arranging for the frame was simple. They stocked several styles of frame and matting and even offered to do the mounting for a modest fee while I waited. I took them up on the offer and went in search of paint. I wasn't really sure what color I was looking for, but with the images of the tapestries fresh in my mind, I narrowed the choices down to a few neutral ones before settling on a base color of pale gray with blue overtones and two highly saturated accent colors, a rich ruby red and a midnight blue. I took the paint chips with me and stopped for the license before heading back to the ship. I wasn't about to buy the paint until I'd checked the colors against the tapestries, but I was pretty sure I had the winning combination in my hand. When I got back aboard, Mr. Ricks had my tapestries rolled in a bundle for me. I hefted them under my arm and headed up the ladder. Chief Gearhart saw me from the mess deck and came out to help me wrestle the roll up to the cabin. She was chuckling all the way up. What's so amusing, Chief? When you said decorate the cabin, you really meant decorate the cabin, Skipper. She flashed a sapphire-tinged smile in my direction. I had no idea you were this serious. By then I had the cabin door open and we dropped the tapestries onto the bench under the port. Just look at this place, Chief. I waved my arm around the empty walls and vacant shelves. I've seen hotel rooms that looked more lived in. She shrugged and nodded her agreement. That's very true, Skipper, but you have had a few things to do since you came aboard. I sighed and nodded, perhaps a bit ruefully. Very true. I pulled the frame license out of the box and held it up to the bulkhead. What do you think, Chief? She nodded approvingly. Looks good. I took the frame and put it in my locker and pulled a bundle of tapestries open, draping the largest one over the table and leaving the smaller ones draped on the bench. I pulled the paint chips out of my pocket and started holding them up to the tapestries and then to the walls. The chief leaned against my desk and observed it all with an amused expression. As she watched me, the amused look shifted a bit to sadly sympathetic. I'm sorry, Skipper. This has to be hard for you. I didn't look at her. Yeah, it's one of those things. Better late than never and seriously overdue. I shrugged. We try to fix what we can, heal where it's possible, and keep moving though, right? I did turn to look at her then. She nodded shortly in sad agreement and sighed. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Sucks to live through, though. I gave my own little shrug of agreement. Well, yeah. I held up the dark blue chip to see what the wall with the port on it would look like. What do you think? Dark blue around the port? Gray blue on the rest of the walls. She came to look over my shoulder to see what I was seeing. You're going to put that big red tapestry on the bulkhead by the door? Yeah. The other three in the sleeping compartment, small ones on either side of the rack and the bigger one on the wall beside the door in there. She looked at the other chips on my hand and pulled the red one out, holding it up beside the blue. It's your cabin, but if it were me, I'd put the red around the port. It balances the red you're going to have over by the door, and that blue-gray is neutral enough that the red will stand up and frame the deep dark while we're underway. What about the dark blue? Paint the sleeping room blue. Use the blue-gray as an accent color in there and the wall above the head of the bed. 
It'll keep it from turning into a cave and make a nice foil for those two small tapestries. I spent half a tick picturing it in my mind's eye. Yes. Yes, I like that a lot. Thank you, Chief. I looked at her, and she was smiling at me. Would you like your stateroom painted? She seemed a bit startled by the idea. I hadn't thought of it, Skipper. I could see her focus shift inward for a heartbeat as she did consider it. Let me think about it, and I'll get back to you. Sure thing, Chief. Just let me know. She turned and looked around the cabin once more before turning her gaze back on me. I'll do that. She smiled then and headed for the door. Well, Skipper, I better go check on the tankage. Have fun decorating. The cabin seemed a lot emptier with her out of it, and I sighed, before picking up my tablet and placing a call to DST's office. As luck would have it, Mr. Jameson and his paint crew were available, and they'd be able to start work at 1400. Thanks for listening to Captain's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is the Mason's Apron and is used with permission of the artist J.F. Archer. Find this and other works by J.F. Archer at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information on the Golden Age, visit www.solarclipper.com.